Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. And to the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. You, O Lord, are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, we are grateful for your word to us. We are, uh, look to you alone and ask that you would speak to us by your spirit. And we ask it confidently in the name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Easter Sunday seems like an age away, even though it's only six days. Uh, yet we are going to continue our reflections, and as we should every day of our lives on the resurrection of Christ, wherein lies all our hope. And as we do so, we want to uh, pay careful attention to how uh, each biblical author proclaims the truth of the gospel. We are common, commonly told, and, and rightly so, that the Bible is written, it's one book written by one author, that is God, and yet he, in his wisdom, chose many different men to pen particular books. And therefore, we have to pay attention and careful attention to how each author proclaims the gospel to us. Example would be with the gospels, and I tell this to my students quite regularly. Each gospel account provides a different angle or a different emphasis from which to read and understand the passion and resurrection of Christ. We often, I think mistakenly so, merge them into one account and therefore miss the specific declaration that each gospel writer is making in his particular gospel. So, for example, Mark and Matthew, when writing about the passion of Christ on the cross, include Jesus' cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luke does not have that cry on the cross. Luke has Jesus forgiving those who are killing him from the cross. Luke has Jesus declaring that someone will be with him in paradise that day from the cross. Luke has Jesus, and of course Jesus does all these things. This isn't Luke making it up. But Luke has Jesus 
giving up his spirit unto death. Jesus is in complete control on the cross. When you read Luke's gospel, there's no cry of dereliction. It doesn't mean there wasn't dereliction. But Luke is, is including some things and leaving other things out. He is proclaiming a particular message about Christ. Because the passion and resurrection of Christ is a multifaceted glory. You cannot sum up the atonement just in one, one way. It is multifaceted. And the Gospels tie into that. And so as we look at Psalm 16, and we're going to come back to Luke uh, towards the end. Uh, but as we look at Psalm 16, we have a Psalm of David, a forward-looking insight into the significance of the resurrection of Christ, but spoken in Old Testament categories. In the context of an Old Testament hope. And particularly in the context of God's covenant with David. Such a vantage point, and it is a unique vantage point, is vital for our understanding of the victory of God in the resurrection of Christ. And before we dive into just select aspects of Psalm 16, we need to start actually in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2. You're going to be if you have your Bibles, thumbing through lots of passages today, so uh, make sure your fingers are nimble. Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and uh, he starts in verse 22, after he's quoted Joel, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus is now a man Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Being delivered by eternal counsel, God is uh, crucified. But in verse 24, God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, and then he quotes Psalm 16, I foresaw the Lord always before me. And then verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. His soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter tells us that David here is speaking not of himself in Psalm 16, but speaking of Christ. And he's confident that that is the case for three reasons. One, he can point to David's tomb. He said, David is dead. So he can't be speaking of himself. Remember the burial practices in, in the second temple period, at the time that Peter is speaking, you would lay the body in a cut-out tomb and allow it to decay, and then you would go in and you would collect up the bones and put them in a box. It's called an ossuary box. And then store them at the side, and guess what? You get to reuse the place where the body lay. So they were well aware of corruption. What happened to a dead body? We just put them out of sight and forget about them. They had to go back and collect the bones. And he says, David, he's dead. His tomb is there. He saw corruption. 
He cannot be speaking of himself. Secondly, he says, you know he's not speaking of himself because he's a prophet. David is a prophet, and he, can, he, he, is, he, he predicts. He speaks of things to come. And he knows, and this is a third reason, that God has made a covenant with him. God has sworn with an oath that of the fruit of his body, would, someone would go, would be king forever. And therefore, David, in penning Psalm 16, is meditating on God's covenant with him. He's made, meditating on God's promise to him. And he writes Psalm 16 with that future hope in mind based on God's covenant with him. A few chapters later in Acts chapter 13, Paul this time is preaching the gospel. And in verse 33, he says, God has fulfilled, well, let's start at verse uh, 32. And we declare to you glad tidings that promise which was made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Quote from Isaiah 55. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. Psalm 16. The sure mercies of David of Isaiah 55, which are a reference to the, the Davidic covenant, the sure mercies promised to David, and has overtones of the Davidic Messiah that is to come, are fulfilled, are seen in the fact that a descendant of David in Psalm 16 will not be allowed to see corruption. So both Peter and Paul tell us when we read Psalm 16, we have to read it in the light of God's covenant with David and David's reflection of that covenant as looking forward to the Messiah, David's greatest son. So we're going to go back and do a quick few, flick through some of the Davidic covenant passages because that is important. If that is what David has in mind when he speaks of this future son of his who will not see corruption, we have to understand exactly what it is that he is meditating on. 2 Samuel 7 is the first example of uh, the first recording of the Davidic covenant. It's brief. David wants to build the Lord a house. He wants to build the Lord a temple. And he's uh, told that that is not going to happen. So, starting at verse 11, Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. David wanted to build God a house, and God says, uh-uh, that's not the way it works. I am building you 
a house. I'm building you a household, a family. It's your household that I will build. God is covenanting with David to establish David's kingdom and David's throne. And he says, it's an establishment that will last forever. It will last forever. Solomon is clearly in view because it says, a seed will come after me and he will build me a house. Yet there's more to it than that. We're left with this question. Does forever, a throne that is established forever, mean a continual dynasty or a king who will reign forever? It's not set out explicitly, but you have that ambiguity there, that question. A few chapters later in 2 Samuel 23, David pens a psalm that didn't get into the Psalter, but got into the book of Samuel. Chapter 23, thus says David, the son of, son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God, and he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? And the last two verses about the judgment on his enemies. You have a beautiful metaphor of what a just ruler in the fear of God is like, like a sun on a cloudless morning, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. And verse 5 makes explicit mention of the everlasting covenant that God has made with David. Now, some of you will not be using a King James or a new King James, where verse 5 says, Although my house is not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. The English Standard Version translates it like this, For does not my house stand so with God? For he hath made me an everlasting covenant, ordered and all things secure. The New International Version, if my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant. Three very different ways of translating the same verse. Actually, all three reasonably legitimate linguistically. I would lean towards the King James. David is aware when he meditates on God's covenant with him, he is aware of the weakness of his own, own household. How could he not be? When you see David's family, how could he not be? Although my house is not so with God, I realize what a just ruler rules in the fear of God is like, like a cloudless morning, like spring grass after fresh rain. He says, um, I don't quite match up as I would like. I'm not sure Solomon's going to match up quite to that standard. Yet he's aware that God has made a covenant with him. Yet God has made a covenant with him. Now, the ESV translation could be read similarly. David is aware that his house is as described only because God has elected him and made a covenant with him. 
But David is conscious of God's covenant, even at the end of his days. And that the only reason his house has any promises made to him is not because of who he is, or the surety of his descendants' faithfulness necessarily, but because God has chosen him. Well, briefly, Psalm 72 has a reflection also. This is a Psalm of Solomon. If you uh, have time when you go home, I would uh, read the whole Psalm, verses 1 to 8, are particularly uh, reflections on God's covenant with Israel. Uh, let's read from verse 5. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass. Sounds familiar. Like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Referring to the uh, promise of God and a request that God would pour out on the king's judgments and upon the king's son. And this is what his descendants will look like. And here you're starting to get a clear image of the hope that is contained within the Davidic covenant. The rule of this Davidic king will be from sea to sea and from the rivers, river to the ends of the earth. Here that rule extends beyond the borders of Israel. And so beyond the expectation of the regular Davidic kings, even Solomon himself, who is writing, whose, whose kingdom was the largest of all the Davidic kings. His kingdom was, was the largest and the most peaceful. And yet here is, here is saying, the king's son, give him his judgments, because his rule is going to be from the river to the ends of the earth. And we go to Psalm 89, uh, we're uh, running fast out of time, but you have Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is written at the time when, uh, remember Isaiah's famous prophecy that the, the Jesse, the family tree of Jesse is going to be like, left like a stump, Isaiah 11. It's going to be a time when Jesse's family tree, when the covenant of God with David is going to look like it is finished, that God has failed, that God has forsaken his promise. And Psalm 89 is a long psalm basically saying, God, why have you forsaken your promises? Look at, look at the Davidic line. Where is it? Where's it gone? Where's the hope that we had? On verse 24 to 25, it says, and, you know, this is what you, he's repeating to God his promises to David and the Davidic covenant. He says, but my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. That's what you've said. And in my name his horn shall be exalted. And I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. That is a remarkable promise to say to a man. Especially when verse 9 of that says, it says, God, you yourself rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And it seems like, God, that's what you do, and now you've made a covenant with David and saying, guess what? He's going to do the same. Clear 
expectation that is going beyond the normal human king, it seems. And finally, Psalm 132. which starts with, Lord, remember David and his afflictions or even his uh, commitments or promises. The Lord has sworn in truth to David, verse 11, he will not turn from it. Again, a psalmist meditating on God's covenant with David. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. Let's jump down to verse 17. There I will make, this is God's promises, there in thrones of Jerusalem and Zion, there I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed, which is a symbol of a kingdom. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. God's covenant with David had a clear eschatological element. It had a hope. It had a forward-looking emphasis. And Peter and Paul, but Peter particularly, says when David wrote Psalm 16, it was a meditation on this very fact. It was a meditation on God's covenant with him. And so when he wrote it, he wrote it with that covenant in mind, and then he shaped a psalm that looked forward to the fulfilling of God's promises to him. And in doing that, he shaped that psalm within the confines of Old Testament language and imagery. And as we unpack that Old Testament language and imagery, we will find it teaches us tremendously today, 2,000 years later after the event, 3,000 years, give or take, after David penned the psalm, it will give us great insight into the significance of the resurrection. So I want to pick up on two particular aspects of Psalm 16. Verse 5 and 6. I mean, David is penning it as if, in one sense, Jesus is speaking. So when we hear the words of Psalm 16, we're hearing the words of Christ. You, O Lord, are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. So this is inheritance, Old Testament inheritance language, and there are two aspects to it. God as in, uh, someone's inheritance, as their portion, is Levitical language. When Israel went into the land, the land was divided up according to the tribes of Israel, but Levi got no inheritance whatsoever. He had no possession in the land, none. The Lord said, I am their inheritance. I am their portion. And they were divided throughout the tribes of Israel, throughout the land. And here Christ is not a Levite, remember, but taking on the words of the Levitical inheritance, saying, 
Christ. God is my inheritance. But then it says, the lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Again, that is inheritance language, but it's the inheritance languages of the rest of the tribes of Israel. Where are their inheritance lions? Where are their lots and their portions? So the one whose God is primarily his inheritance himself receives an inheritance. An inheritance which includes lands and people. Remember when Jesus walked this earth, he said, he had, son of man had nowhere to lay his head. He owned nothing. He owned nothing. He, God was is his inheritance. And remember in Old Testament language, that inheritance, when you received an inheritance, it was yours. The land, the household, the people that were on it, it was yours. But then you died, and what happened to it? It went to someone else. Or you fell into hardship, and you sold it to someone else, and you became sort of indentured to them, and then it returned to you in the year of Jubilee, but eventually it would go on to someone else. Here the psalmist, David, is speaking, and Jesus is speaking in the words of this psalm, speaking about God being his inheritance, and yet him also getting a great inheritance, a pleasant inheritance, a good inheritance. And when he walked the earth, he had nowhere to lay his head. And speaking of the God, God being his all in all and rejoicing in that inheritance, he then receives from him the world. That is his inheritance. Because we know that the son of David will rule from the river to the ends of the earth. The Lord has given him not only the land of Israel, but the whole world. The land of Israel, remember, in God's economy was an earnest of the universal redemption. What is most, why, why is that so significant? Well, we're part of that inheritance. We sit here today as that inheritance, which Jesus himself says, the lines have fallen to me in goodly places. I've received a good inheritance. But the psalm goes on to say that this person who receives that inheritance will not see corruption. He will die and he will rise again. What does that mean? His inheritance is never lost. His inheritance is secure. He will not pass that inheritance on to anyone else. We remain his inheritance. We remain his possession, given to him by his father for all time, as long as he lives. He is your Lord. He is your king. As long as he lives, you are secure. And because Psalm 16 tells us he died and went through death and came out never again to see corruption, he lives forever. Our assurance for our salvation is secure as long as he lives. 
we rescue. David says, Christ speaking through David's words, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now the term Sheol is a technical term for the Old Testament. David uses it specifically, so we have to understand why he uses that term. It's not simply a reference to the grave. It is not simply, Sheol is not simply the end point for everyone who lives in Old Testament language. It is the location of some who die. Remember David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 says, uh, talks about him resting with his fathers. That is a different terminology to Sheol. What does Sheol represent? What does it mean? Relying on people like Levinson and Old Testament scholars and Johnson and others, Sheol represents a powerful, the powerful and malignant forces that negate life and deprive it of its meaning. As well as being the end point of those who die outside of God's favor. Sheol and death, therefore, is the ultimate denial of life and its meaning in Old Testament language. It is often perceived as a kind of continuation of the end of the deceased's life. If the deceased has died prematurely, violently, bereft of children, rejected by God, or brokenhearted, he faces Sheol. It has been described as the prolongation of the unfulfilled life. It is not resting with your fathers. It is not dying gathered with, with your sons and daughters and grandchildren and great-grandchildren around you when you bless them. That's a different form of death in Old Testament terminology. And David specifically says his greater son will not be forsaken, literally, that's the language. You will not be forsaken to Sheol. And Christ take those word, takes those words upon him, his own lips. Those are Christ's words. He is confident that the Father will not forsake him to Sheol. Now what sort of death did Christ die? If we'd put it in Old Testament terms, what sort of death did Christ die? Well, according to the popular opinion of the day, he had dubious parentage. He was unmarried, childless, had a death that indicated he was cursed by God. He was abandoned, it seemed, by most of his followers, rejected by the leaders of his people. He was crucified there naked between two thieves, one of whom mocked him. He was mocked by the crowd, and the people who killed him were the foreign oppressors of the people of Israel. If you want an example of an Old Testament death that would end in Sheol, Jesus' death is that. By using the word Sheol, David indicates that his greater son would die this sort of death. He would drain the cup of a Sheol-like death as one apparently, apparently outside of God's favor, facing the prolongation of the unfilled life. Yet David says... He will not be forsaken to Sheol. His body will not see corruption, but he will be taught the path of life, and he will experience 
God's presence in perfect joy and the delights that are ever at his right hand. David understood that for God's promise to be true, a descendant of his would not need to go through the worst kind of death and come out having put on incorruption and immortality. He had to go through the worst kind of death and drain it of all its strength and power and defeat it completely. The message of Easter and the resurrection of Christ, therefore, is not that we don't have to go through Sheol, as Toby said in, uh, earlier, like Sheol, like travails. It is that being united with Christ, they will be fruitful because Sheol has been defeated. Death has been defeated. And David understood this. Secondly, Christ entered into his passion in which he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he knew that he would be unforsaken to Sheol. The forsaken of Psalm 22 is exactly the same word as the you shall not leave my soul in Sheol of Psalm 16. He is the unforsaken Christ. And it is striking that it is Luke's gospel who left out the my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, who in part two of his gospel acts, quotes Psalm 16 a couple of occasions. He wants us to be clear, Luke, of this facet of God's glory in Christ's death and resurrection. He drained the cup of Sheol to its very dregs, for your sake and for my sake, but was not forsaken there. He came out alive. He destroyed it. Thirdly and finally, Christ is King David's greater son, and it is he who fulfills every last word of God's covenant. And so it is he who rules on David's throne. And what is his rule like? It is just. It's ruling in the fear of God, and he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises. Every day of Christ's rule, from his ascension till now and until glory, is a morning without clouds for his people. It's like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. This is the metaphor of spring, a time of exuberant life, when nothing can stop the growth of those seeds that have been planted in the ground. And remember, this is an image from the Middle East. This is not the Palouse that David is writing this. This is in the Middle East, where the life-givingness of sun and moisture and that life is, is so striking. That is what the rule of Christ is like from that day until now. That is the rule of your king. Every morning. What is the end of all this? What is the application for us? What would... What is the takeaway? Well, we would need to end with Isaiah 55. We remember the sure mercies of David are that Christ is not forsaken to Sheol. The sure mercies of David are that his body would not see corruption. And what would Isaiah say to you and me 
this morning. He would say, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully. Eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come. Hear, and your soul shall live. Let us pray together. Father, we are grateful for the words of King David, who speaks with the voice of Christ about the victory, your victory over death and Sheol in Christ's death and resurrection. We are grateful for these words and for the truth that they communicate to us. Father, may we rejoice in the rule of your son, the one who fulfilled all the Davidic promises, rule that is likened to a cloudless morning, to the exuberant life of spring. Father, when we go through trials, when we go through difficulty, when we taste Sheol in our difficulties, Father, may we remember that we are united with him who has drained that cup, and it will not be fruitless. Amen. Christians are not to get personal revenge for wrongs. But rather, Christians are commanded to love their enemies, do good to them, and to overcome evil with good. What many Christians do not understand is that this is a strategy of resistance. The whole point of loving enemies is to disarm them, to subvert their evil purposes, and to convert them to Christ. We know this because this is what the gospel has done for us. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. God doesn't save anyone but his enemies. You were an enemy of God in your sins, and God offered you mercy. He offered to pour out his wrath on his own son on the cross instead of you. He offered to give you the bread of his body and the wine of his own blood. And the really glorious thing is that he still does that. When God reconciles us to himself, he declares us righteous, knowing full well just how filthy our hearts still are. He declares us righteous, knowing all the sins we will still commit, all the treason, all the filth still to come. And so you are invited here, once again, as the friends of God. Your debts are all paid, your sins are forgiven, you're washed clean, and there's a seat here at this table with your name on it. And if that doesn't seem crazy, you're not paying attention. God does not do this in apathy about our sin. He does this in order to conquer our sin. He doesn't justify sinners in order to justify our sin. He does this because the grace of his blood is the only detergent that will actually remove all our stains. And so if this is true for us, then we must not forget that it's true for the whole world. Who are the most hardened sinners in your life besides you? Who are the most rebellious, the most vile, the most offensive, the most difficult for you? They are all good candidates for God's grace, just like you. Pray for them, do good to them, 
When they're hungry, feed them. When they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And so heap up burning coals on their heads. Set them on fire with the mercy and kindness of God because that is what God is doing with you right here. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks. So let's pray together. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that when we were your enemies, you sent your beloved son to die in our place. We thank you that you loved us when we hated you. We thank you that you reconciled us to yourself when we were still kicking and screaming. Father, we pray that you would fill us with deep gratitude for your kindness to us and cause this kindness and grace in us to be used by you to bring many more of your enemies to yourself. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. We've heard this morning a wonderful reminder that God keeps his promises. He kept his promise to David 3,000 years ago. And 2,000 years ago, he fulfilled it. And our, our king, our Lord, our hero, he experienced a God-forsaken death so that in our darkness we would know that he's been there. And God did not forsake him to that death, did not forsake him in that grave, so that we would know that we are safe in him. So go now in this hope, in this faith, in this joy. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever, and amen.